You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. Now this is still part of our series where we've got guests in, we're talking to them about their hero and their howler. I'm pleased to say our our guest today is, well, apart from being a friend of the show, David Hunt is a fantastic historical writer and he's going to call me a suck-up again, aren't you? (laughs) I'm going to call you a big suck-up. A big suck-up. David's book's True Gert and Gert Nation. Paul and I both really enjoy them, mate. Congratulations. Yeah, some of the best books we've read for a while on the All those anecdotes, I still don't know where you find them all, David, but yeah, really good the way they put them together, really worth having a dig out if you're in the bookshops. But today, we're going to talk heroes and howls, and fortunately, with your background, you have chosen an Aussie hero and an Australian howler. But I must admit, your choice of a hero... Uh, well, <laughs> well yeah. David, you know, tell what, us... What's wrong with my choice of a hero? Alfred Deakin, the second Prime Minister of Australia. Alfred, Alfred Deakin, the three-time Prime Minister of Australia, mm-hmm. the man who put the modern Australian system that we have today on the map, I say. But unfortunately, Dan, mm. look, I'm, look, I'm not the Aussie in this room, so mm. yeah, I'm going to uh, bow to both of you today, but... I was quite surprised. Yeah. The founding father of the Liberal Party, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the religious wacko with racist views, yeah. sounds a little bit more like yeah, sort of Tony Abbott and ScoMo wing of the party than, than Turnbull. But uh, yeah, go on, tell us not, why you oh, think. Look, not you at all. Think I mean, De- Deacon, Deacon was a classic liberal in the old school variety. Indeed, um, in his uh, first prime ministership and his second prime ministership, he, he effectively entered into a coalition with the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. He was a, uh, a protectionist, mm-hmm. and he he then formed when he realised that Labor Party with the Labor Party with all of its organisation and caucusing and binding its members to votes was going to take over over the world unless there was some decent opposition. Mm. He formed the Fusion, which sounds like an 80s boy band. It does indeed. Well, actually, you know, I've seen photos. They do mm. look a little bit like wet, wet, wet. They, well, they, yes, they do. Him and Edmund Barton, yes. you know, could have could have done some beautiful stuff together. Now, musically. this is in 1909, he forms the Fusion. He does, yeah. Now, this is where he gets his two... We go, so he had two nicknames. One was Affable Alfred, because everyone yeah. liked him. But the other one after the Fusion was... So, Devious Deacon. Yeah. Isn't that where Sir William Lyon called him Judas? Yeah, he did, because he was seen as selling out on the Labor Party that had been a long-term ally to ally with his long-term enemies, the Free mm. Trade Party, who were who were fundamentally the, cons- the conservative wing of the Liberal Party we have today. But the, mm. but the long-term ramification mm. of that is it cements the two-party system in Australian politics. Uh, it, it does, and it replaced, I suppose, a system where... There were no real parties other than the Labor Party mm. that sort of bound people to a vote. So you have these flowing coalitions of people coming and going, like in Italy today. Mm. It was a bit of a revolving door. I think it's worth pointing that yeah. out, actually, because a lot of people don't quite realise at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, mm. over here in Australia, interestingly, the Labor movement 
was actually much, much stronger than, certainly stronger than Britain, but was in Britain at the time. And, yeah. and as you say, it was almost stronger than the opposition, wasn't it? They really were well organised. And yeah. to be fair, the workers yeah. were relatively well off in the beginning oh, of the uh, 20th century compared to England, for example. You know, Melbourne really is that yeah. second city. It's the second richest city in the empire, isn't yeah. it? And of course, you know, Deakin is very much a, a Melbourne man. Um, and you know, some would say that's where he gets his conservatism from. But yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit more about how he got into that. You said three times prime minister. Yeah. How did that work, David? Well, as you said, Labor had much more of a foothold here than anywhere else in the world. It was uh, in Queensland, the first place ever in the world to elect uh, a Labor government. Uh, Australia, after Deakin, Chris Watson, the first Labor prime minister anywhere in the world. So Labor was a potent political force here in a way that it wasn't anywhere else. Mm. Uh, and workers had the highest standard of living anywhere in the world. Mm. Uh, Australia had the the highest standard of living and the highest GDP per capita of anywhere in the world at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. So it was, it was seen as a, a workers' paradise. And the Labor Party was the political arm of the union mm-hmm. movement. Mm. And they realised that they needed to get political after being shafted repeatedly by politicians. Because the right was a bit split, wasn't it? There was the free traders on one side and, as you said, the protectionists on the other. And that meant that the, the Labour mm. Party was almost able to divide and conquer all the time. The protectionists weren't um, in any way conservative. They they were across the spectrum. Right. A bunch of people who believed fundamentally, as the Labour Party did, in protectionism, in imposing tariffs to keep Australian goods right. a manufacturing base in and Australia. Let's, let's face it, the, mm. you know, the hangover of that protectionism mm. pretty much survives into the, into the 1970s and 1980s in Australia. Oh, until the 1980s when, yeah, yeah. when, uh, when Labor started sort of dismantling the old protectionist tariffs. Yeah. Now, now, here's one thing. I, I want to go back in, in his pre-political career. Like, yeah. like, like a lot of the, uh, the founding fathers, yeah. he had a law background. Oh, well, he, he never actually got a law degree. Uh, he, he just sat some exams and passed and, and, and therefore said, I'm a barrister. Well, right. he actually represented it. And I didn't realise this. Yeah. I did some reading. A bloke called Frederick Bailey Denning. He did, who yes. was a, who, who a mass was a, murderer. Well, a, ma- a mass murderer. And the, his defence for Denning was it was that classic old up chestnut. I'm mad because of syphilis. Mm. But here's the one thing, Paul, that I didn't know. Denning had immigrated to Australia. He's still to this day one of the suspects for being Jack the Ripper. He is, ah. yeah. I think it's pretty cool that we have an Australian political figure mm. who not only communicated with the dead oh. spirits of, of, of great men and the occasional woman in world history, yes. but he quite possibly tried to get Jack the Ripper off the hook. <laughs> now, and, and, and another thing too, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about this yeah. a little bit later, as part of being part of that, that Melbourne legal system, he was actually there for the execution of Ned Kelly. He was uh, a journalist who yeah. was covering, one of 20 journalists covering the, the Kelly execution and gave the most boring report <laughs> of it, um, which was probably the factually accurate one. He didn't say anything like such is life were Kelly's last words, which nah. is load of old tosh. He basically just said... They put him on the platform, they pulled the lever, and there you go. Bye-bye, Ned. Quick spoiler alert. We'll be getting to Ned Ned Kelly in a little bit of time because he's actually your howler. But but, but back to Deacon. Now, you mentioned the spiritualism. Yeah. Let's get into it. The Theosophical Society. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, look, the Theosophists were an an offshoot of the broader spiritualist movement of which 
He was the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists before he entered Parliament. Oh, the mm. Progressive Spiritualists. Uh, yeah. I always get them yeah. confused with the other whack jobs. <laughs> they, they were the liberally pro- uh, progressive dead. It, you know, dead who cared about the the quality of life of the lower classes. Well, see, that's, mm. that's the one thing. Uh, we've talked about this before, just how rampant spiritualism was, not just mm. in Australia, but in, in Victorian England, in the Gilded Age in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. America too. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it was it was popularised in America by Abraham Lincoln's wife, effectively, once mm. she gave it, it her the White House seal of approval and was holding seances in the White House. It took off around the world, nowhere more so than Melbourne. And yes. so you have all of these... Lawyers, doctors, captains of industry subscribing to a new religion which was seen as a response to the challenges biblical literalism was facing. Where here we are, we're looking at dead people who are, we're looking at spirits that actually you can experience. They knock tables, they manifest ectoplasm, they make strange noises through mystic trumpets. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was seen as, as sort of a scientific form of religion. Mm. Well, actually, because uh, when it comes to that society, um, Deacon's wife, mm. uh, Martha Ann, everyone called Patty, yeah. her dad was uh, Hugh John Brown, yep. who, who was uh, a very wealthy Melbourne figure, but also to a leading spiritualist himself. That's right. So he got his break in life through spiritualism, where David Syme, who was the proprietor of The Age, the most powerful media baron in Australian history prior to Rupert Murdoch, really, Mm. who controlled politicians and politics in Victoria like no one else. His wife, Amabella, sent the kids off to the spiritualist Sunday school, the Progressive Lyceum, where Deacon was the Sunday school leader who taught, you know, kids how to... Uh, sing, dance, do calisthenics and communicate with the dead. Which brings me to one quick question. Mm. So even with that, Martha Ann's father, John, a huge John, never really took to Deacon. Uh, no, well, he, he thought that he didn't have sufficient cashola oh. uh, back in the day. He, he thought he was a man of low prospects. Nobody was hiring him as a barrister. He'd had a sort of unsuccessful sort of stationary business. He tried to write some... Uh, turgid theatre and poetry reviews for the paper. Uh, so he wasn't seen as a man on the make when he married Patty. One quick thing too before, before we move on, and people often forget this, it was the 1893 crash. Mm. Um, Deacon and his father get wiped out in that mm. crash. Yeah. And, and you talk about you know, the birth of the Labor movement. That yeah. 1893 crash had massive ramifications on Australian politics. Mm. A- a- absolutely. And look, Deacon didn't get wiped out as badly as some other people because he was politically connected enough to squirrel some of the family assets away mm. and to pass laws or be complicit in passing laws that protected bank directors of which he was mm. of which he was one. Of course. Yeah. All right. So David, yeah, we've obviously got a figure here who's massively associated with the Federation of yeah. Australia. Yeah. And let's get back into the why, why is my hero? Politi- politics. Yeah. What do you would what would yeah. you say are his two or three main achievements that really make okay. him uh, Okay, up? look he was I think more than any other person he was the driving force for Federation, he was the person who the other, in inverted commas, fathers of Federation turned to mm. when they were having difficulty negotiating bits of the Constitution. He was the deal maker mm. who'd sort things out. He was the most active campaigner, just travelling around the country pushing mm. for Federation. Was there a big opposition to it? Uh, look, yeah, yeah, there was some opposition to it. I mean, it, 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 it effectively, you know, got up in the end in in, in every state, but there were. Um, all, uh, the Labor Party was was formally opposed to mm, it, mm. and it caused a, a split in the Labor Party where some of the 
Labor people who supported um, Federation actually sort of peeled off. So Federation, uh, one big tick, he introduced a range of incredibly progressive social reforms that not only changed Australia but changed the world, um, introduces the the world's first effective workplace health and safety laws in Victorian Mm -hmm. factories. He introduces um, compulsory arbitration for industrial disputes, Mm. um, a model that has served Australia incredibly well. Mm. He introduced old age pensions. He was the the brains trust behind the Australian minimum wage Mm. and a fair wage. And he got businesses to pay workers by saying, we're only going to let you reap the benefits of tariff protections if you pass those benefits and profits along to your workers. So that was the deal that was struck. Now, that's a major list of achievements, yeah. but we, it has to be discussed, like a lot of men of mm. his time. Mm. But he was very much a son of empire. A, a, a huge fan of empire. Mm. And let's be honest, racist. Well, look, everybody was racist at the turn of the century. There are only two members of the entire parliament who voted against the Immigration Restriction Act, the White, the white Australia policy. Mm-hmm. He was actually one of the only people in parliament who could legitimately say, some of my best friends are. Oh, wow. um, mm-hmm. So he was, he had a more nuanced approach to race, whilst the Labor Party in particular and, and many others in parliament saw Asian races as inferior. Mm. He gets up during the debate on the Immigration Restriction Act and said, no, they're not inferior. The worry is that they're bloody good at what they do, mm, mm. Uh, with a particular concern about the Japanese. Japanese yes, mm. yes, yes. Uh, and, and he said, one of the reasons that we're controlling immigration is to, to basically have Fortress Australia, mm. because he saw Asia as a threat um, militarily. But more than anything else, he used racism as a tool to sort of foster the Australian nationalism that resulted in the Australian colonies coming together. I think it's worth pointing out, especially for the non-Australian listeners mm. that we have, we're talking, this is basically what's gone down in history as we call the Australian settlement, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, the white Australia policy. And it is different to what's happening in the USA, for example, um, because you know, we mentioned about Japan, we mentioned about Asia. Mm. It is very interesting because you know, my... As a non-Australian, you know, my first reaction was it was all about the indigenous population. But, of course, it's not. It's not about that at all. Unfortunately, mm. they've already been ignored. They've already been downtrodden. Mm. You know, they're already out of the picture. The, the white settlement, the Australian settlement policy is all about do we let the Asian, our neighbours come in? There's been some Chinese in already. There's a few Japanese. And as you say, he get, this deacon, he gets up and he says, no, I, we can't let the Japanese in, because their work ethic is far too good, it's going to show up our boys mm. and they're going to take all the jobs. Well, the, 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 jobs, the jobs argument is actually overrated. I think that's a bit of historical revisionism by Labor Party historians who look back and are trying to find excuses for why Labor, which was the grand champion of white Australia and made it central to its policy platform and the other you know, politicians followed its mm. lead, mm. it's used as an excuse for why the Labor Party was, was fundamentally a pack of pack of racists. Right. The economy was was a small part of the equation. There was a genuine belief in the inferiority of the Asian coloured races mm. as a mm. whole, mm. genuinely held belief that they were inferior. Mm. And there were some people like Deakin who uh, saw them as potentially successful competitors for influence in the Pacific. It's mm. always a political and philosophical minefield when mm. we are discussing you know, the, the people that set up this country mm. and, and, and this issue. 
So getting back to a lighter side of Deegan, yeah. how much of his, you know, yeah. unorthodox beliefs were actually known by the general public? Uh, when he first ran for, for Victorian politics, he was pilloried um, by his opponents as the champion of the spiritualist movement in, in mm-hmm. Victoria. He romped it in. It didn't affect his vote. And at the time, uh, Victoria was spiritualist central mm. and lots of movers and shakers were spiritualists. So the insult didn't really have the um, intended effect. Well, as you said, you know, he actually came back three times. Three times he was voted in as prime minister. Yeah. So he couldn't have had <laughs> too much of a negative effect. Well, look, just just before he became prime minister and just before Federation, he did sort of set up a theosophist lodge and the theosophists were more nut jobby than your average garden spiritualist. Mm. And they believed that everything in the universe had been created, I think, by seven intelligent rays of light called the Diane Cohens. And, yeah, why, and, not? and why, not? why not? Who infused the universe with a cosmic life force known as Fohat. Uh, and so by this stage, when he embraces theosophy, mm. he's, he's sort of well and truly entered the sort of Tom Cruise stage of his spiritual development. <laughs> but when he's running for high office at the turn of the 20th century, whilst he probably still has those beliefs, he publicly distanced himself and played it down. Mm. Yeah. Now, because he, he died relatively young. I mm. mean, he, you know, even at a time we, when lifespans were short. Well, mm. did he die or did he pass to a higher plane, Mikey? Oh, he just died, mate. Because <laughs> uh, uh, he was thinking of running again, but around about his early 60s, he gets diagnosed with dementia. Yeah, uh, and, and dementia wasn't sort of known, really, no. in those days. Um Clearly, in the last, in his last term as leader of the opposition, after Labor defeated the fusion in in nineteen hundred and ten, mm. he was off his game. He was forgetting stuff. He'd always had a mind like a steel trap, and he um, he rapidly sank into dementia and died in his early 60s, 63, I think. And one of the the, the most beautiful stories is he'd had this cockatoo. His wife had had yeah. a cockatoo given to her by her father since before she was married. This old mangy cockatoo. <laughs> uh, that sat in the hallway of the Deacon house. And after Deacon died, whenever the door was opened or there was a knock on the door, Deacon's voice would emerge from the house <laughs> the saying, basically, come in. <laughs> uh, and, you know, knock, 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 yeah. spirit knocking, Deacon's voice, come in. Uh, the cockatoo spoke like Deacon in Perfect. Deacon's voice. Or perhaps was what? possessed yes. <laughs> possessed by the spirit of Alfred Deacon. I, th- I think on that note, we can uh, say farewell to Al- Alfred Deacon. Um, an interesting <coughs> man, a fascinating man. I, I can see why you picked him as a hero. Mm. But also, too... We could, a couple great. of caveats, but, you know, in terms of Federation, certainly he's got to be uh, seen as heroic, uh, if, yeah. if, if not everyone's hero. And in terms of setting up Australia for the 20th century, yep. yes. Now stick around, because we've got a howler to put the boot into. Hi, folks. Uh, welcome back. We're here with a historian, author, and all-round fun guy, David Hunt, the author of the Gerd books. Love you of you to pop in, mate. Oh, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Now, we're going to talk howlers. You're a howler. And I didn't realise this until recently. It's been the subject of more biographies than any other Australian. Ooh. We're talking about Ned Kelly. All right, so Ned Kelly. Now, obviously, a lot of uh, my Australian friends will tell me that he's such a, a great hero, um, but you're going to put him down 
as a howler. We're in the middle of the 19th century now, aren't we? So a few, about 50 years before your hero, Deacon. And I think Kelly born 1854, and obviously more famously yeah, died in... 1854 80. or 1855. Right, okay. And as a historian, this is, this is one of the reasons he's a howler. His family didn't bother with keeping sort of official records or registering his birth. Uh, they simply sort of said later on in life he was born at the time of the Eureka Rebellion. Yes. Uh, which was an attempt to sort of link him as this sort of heroic figure fighting injustice. Well, in fact, one of the great early propagandists for Kelly was his mother. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. But, but, and that's it. And a lot of people since, a lot of propagandists since have actually tried to tie him in, as you said, with that Eureka stockade mm. and all the rebellion and the myths. that have, Yeah, uh, his own family I've, started that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, talking about that whole Irish thing, I think we need a little bit of historical perspective. So, Paul, what do you got for us, mate? Okay, well, like I said, we're in the 1840s, 1850s. Mm. Um, now, of course, convicts are no longer being sent over to the eastern states. They'll, they'll keep going in Western Australia for another 20 years, as a lot of things tend to do. Mm. Um, but, yeah, they stopped over here. But his father, Ned Kelly's father, he had been transported over as a convict, hadn't he? he to Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah. But very important to mention, he is, of course, Irish, not English. He comes from Tipperary. Um, and I think one of the oh, important that's a long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the important things to talk about is just how much in the mid late nineteenth mm. century a lot of the people who are migrating to Australia, although they come from the empire, yeah, you know, a lot of them are coming from Ireland, and just as the Irish who went over to America, they are not particularly big fans of the English. They're not particularly big fans of the British Empire. So when they come over here, they are not going to be upholding the law and order and saying how great the kings and queens of my land were. Yeah, they're quite happy to throw off the British imperial hmm. yoke. And back in Ireland, of course, in the 1868 election, you know, with Gladstone and the Irish nationals, they're already pushing for home rules. So it's no surprise to hear that Irish migrants coming to Australia are looking for a bit of home rule and to throw off the yoke over here as well. Yeah, look, that's definitely the case. Australia's got a long and proud Irish history dating from the first convicts sent out from Ireland itself in 1790. Mm. Um, so uh, they weren't on the first fleet. They were all shipped off to Sydney in Nova Scotia rather than Sydney um, <laughs> right. over here. But look, they played an incredibly important uh, role in convict society and the development of the convict system. Mm. And come the the middle of the of the nineteenth century, you are beginning to see a convictism being dismantled progressively in Victoria, New South Wales, a little bit later Tasmania, uh, Van Diemen's Land, as it was known. But you have by eighteen sixty one about fifteen percent of all people living in the colonies are Irish, mm. born in Ireland, mm. but they make up 30% of the prison system. Mm. They have twice the rate of poor relief, uh, poverty support effectively, mm. uh, as the general population. Mm. And they were mocked as a, an underclass mm. here as they were back in, in Britain. Yeah. But they weren't a homogenous lot. Right. You do have a number of sort of Anglo-Irish people who are at the top of the Victorian uh, political system. Yep. Gavin Duffy at the top of the judicial system yep. uh, in law, in medicine. So you've got sort of an Irish overclass as well. Just like you have back in Ireland with exactly. the Dublin, Dublin exactly. in the Pale, yeah. Exactly. So when it comes to the Kellys, and this has always been a part of the Kelly story, <coughs> yeah. they were oppressed because they were Irish. 
Well, look, I mean, Ned, Ned didn't so much have a chip on his shoulder as an entire sack of potatoes, <laughs> uh, which was good because at least he could have an entire sack of potatoes here in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, short supply in Ireland. Look, he, he, he thought there was incredible prejudice against the Irish, but also prejudice against the small-scale land selectors mm-hmm. in general. And if you're looking for some Irish innovation in Australian history, Gavin Duffy, who had been a land reformer, back in Ireland, comes out as the most powerful political figure in Victoria, Mm. champions the dismantling of the squatter system where all of the land was owned by sheep barons and cattle barons Mm. and starts allowing small-scale farmers to purchase uh, or to lease um, uh, uh, bits of selections that were... Which has a very positive effect, doesn't it, It Well, it it broadens the Australian uh, economy from basically uh, wool and, and, and beef and, and lamb and, and lets smaller scale agriculture take root. And it was people like the Kellys mm. who were trying to make a go as small scale farmers who they thought the government was against them, uh, governments largely run by the squatters' interests, the large landholders were against them and they felt thoroughly persecuted. Now, see, here's the thing I didn't realise until recently. You know, even though he's you know, held up as the ultimate bushranger, mm. by the time you know, Kelly's in his criminal career, it's almost an anachronism. I mean, you know, the great age of bushrangers yeah. pretty much finishes in 1865 with, yeah. the, with the death of Ben Hall. And he, he deliberately tries to revive yeah. the image of... Uh, I think he, he rides out of Gerildery uh, saying, um, you know, for Ben Hall and Dan Morgan. Mm. So he's he's deliberately trying to tap into this anti-authoritarian bushranger trope yeah, to, to build popular support for himself in Kelly Some people country. complain that, you know, the, the Kelly family builds up Ned's myth, but Ned was quite happy to build up a bit of myth for himself, wasn't oh, he? Oh, look, Kelly was a huge self-promoter, incredibly charismatic, Got the gift of the gab. Good looking, um, like too. Good looking. Well, it, it, it's difficult to tell behind all that beard. Um, <laughs> no, I've seen some photos of him without the beard. Yeah, like, uh, well, that the famous photo of him without the beard was taken the day before he hanged, and he doesn't look very happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair then enough. again, people never looked happy in 19th yeah. century photographs because yeah. he had to sit there and pose for for minutes before the uh, before <laughs> he got a decent exposure. So, if you have a look at his early upbringing. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, Red Kelly, his father, uh, when he left um, uh, uh, Tasmania and settled in Victoria, he settled in uh, Donnybrook because he liked to fight and then moved to the town of Beveridge because he liked to drink. Oh, there you go. Um, and so you've got um, a guy who's a father who's violent, who is an alcoholic. He, he eventually dies mm. of, of alcoholism, uh, leaving Ned as one of, of eight kids uh, with a still relatively young single mother, mm-hmm. um, and he has a he has a hard upbringing. They, they they are they are living in genuine poverty. And then one of his uncles, his um, his father's brother, when he tries to fill up his 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 um, uh, Mrs. Kelly, mm. burns down their hotel, the place the place where they lived. So mm. you know he's he's got got a pretty tough upbringing. But there was that moment which is. Part of the Kelly mythology, yeah. but it's true. As a young boy, yeah. he saves another boy from drowning. He does. He's, he's aged 11, and he dives into a, a, a creek where um, the local baker's son is drowning. 
saves him, and he's the town hero. Mm. And he's awarded a sort of green and gold sash that he... He proudly wears, mm. and still wearing it on the day that he got shot. Is that right? Is that true? Yeah, look, it is true, and it's one of the the great tear-jerking bits of the of the Kelly story. Mm. This moment of pride, where he was seen as good and wonderful by the community around him, he obviously treasured this. Mm. And at the siege of Glen Rowan, when he goes out to die in his suit of armour, he's he's wearing the sash under his armour. So when they strip mm. the armour away, they find his childhood. Sash that he got for rescuing this kid. Now, speaking of his early years, probably the, the most important meeting he has is with like the OG, the original gangster, a guy uh, called Harry Powell. Yeah, look, Harry. Harry was um, by this stage the Kellys um, and their related families, the Quins, and were all engaged in cattle theft, horse theft. They were animal liberationists keen on liberating other people's animals. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so, look, he's, he's embarked on a life of crime. Mm. Uh, he first appears in a court at the age of, of eight, giving alibi. My, my uncle Jimmy couldn't have done it because he was with me. <laughs> that didn't go down well, and Jimmy was jailed for five years. Mm. Uh, he's first uh, in a wanted notice um, from the local police calling for his arrest and his five-year-old brother, Dan, suspected of, of, of cattle theft. Mm. So by the time he falls in with Harry Power, he's 13 or 14, and Harry is an escaped, uh, two times escaped uh, convict, um, had previously uh, shot somebody uh, trying to steal his horse, was mm. regarded as, you know, a, a dangerous villain and very much a wanted man. Actually, Harry once carried out 600 robberies in one year. He was quite industrious. He, he had a work ethic. Yeah, well, uh, you, you, can't, you can't knock his work ethic. But getting back to what you, you yeah. were talking about before about Kelly being the great self-promoter, it's, it's Powell that also instills that sort of the, the Bush Ranger mythology in, in Ned. Oh, certainly he taught Ned how to hold a gun and point it at people and demand money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, he took on Ned as, as an apprentice. All right, but we, you're saying he's a howler. Yeah, we've heard yeah. some good things, some bad things. It's not just because he's a criminal, though. Why, why are you saying that, Yeah, on the ledger, he has to be uh, seen on, yeah, well, as think, a negative? We're talking so far, you know... Petty crime. Pe- petty, petty crime. It would be fair to say... Uh, that it escalated, mm-hmm. um, and that he famously uh, shot um, three police officers at mm-hmm. Stringy Bark Creek. Mm-hmm. For one, one of them escaped. Um, McIntyre escaped. Um, he did that. The last one in in cold blood. He sort of hunted him down in the bush, shot him under the armpit, and then um, you know finished put, put finished him. Finished the job. Yeah. Finished finished the job. Uh, not only did he do that, but in his later escapades. Uh, you know, holds up entire towns on two occasions. You know, in the lead up to the to to the siege of of Glen Rowan, mm. um, he is planning to rob another bank and to make sure that he's not going to be arrested whilst doing that. The plan is to derail a train full of coppers yes. mm. outside Glen Rowan. And if the train crash doesn't kill them, uh, the will. Kellys uh, and and Kelly and the gang will be up there. Uh, on the ridge line, to pick shooting them, them to yeah. pick them off. Mm. So, uh, he, you know, he's basically a, a cop killer in a metal gym suit. Well, yeah, actually, let's, let's be honest, the guy was a sociopath. Mm. I, I actually think, you know, it's not just, you know, the, the Robin Hood mythology. He, in, you know, he seems to take pleasure in, in, in cruelty. Also, what you've got to understand about the police at the time is 82% of Victorian police at the time were Irish themselves. Yeah. Mm. So he, he, he holds himself out as a sort of defender of Irishness. The people who he's targeting are, are effectively Irish. Mm. Um, 
he despised the Protestant Irish police because many of them were members of the the Ulster forces back in in Ireland, mm. uh, and he despised the Catholic police even more because he saw them as traitors and turncoats. Turncoats, yeah. Um, and so he hated the police. Um, he was more than happy to kill them. I, I wouldn't say that. I'd, I'd say that he was actually often quite kind rather than cruel. He yeah. was he was moved to acts of generosity. People who he held up basically gave him glowing testimonials and said what a wonderful manly man he was. Well, 30,000 people signed a petition for him not to be executed. Yeah, uh, and so in the lead up to his hanging, um, 30, over 32,000, the sisters, his sisters put a, put a petition out there. You had over 6,000 people marching through the streets of Melbourne mm. um, campaigning for him, obviously not to be released, but not to be not to be hanged. Mm. So um, he was he was very much seen as a as a folk hero at the time, but a folk hero whose idea of a, a good time was was killing coppers. Do you think he achieved anything? Um, well, he, he achieved an early death. Um, so it would be fair to say that following the hold-up of Euroa um, and his Euroa letter, it actually got him incredible public sympathy. He explained why he had turned to a life of crime, the social factors against it. Uh, he'd also robbed the bank. When he robbed the bank at Euroa, he burnt their mortgage documents and title deeds, which he said was... So the banks who were bankrolling the squatters didn't have the land records that could push selectors off their lands mm. uh, and enforce mortgages. So he, 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 he was seen as a champion for the, the underdog following that uh, hold-up of, of Urara in mm. particular. Which, which is why his legacy kicks in so quickly. 26 years after his death, mm. you get the first feature film... You know, in the world. In the world. In the world. The story of the Kelly Gang, mm. uh, which is an amazing film. In fact, he's, you know, he's been turned into cinema many times. There's the, the Mick Jagger, 1970. Yes, uh, yes. There's, there's Heath. <laughs> yeah, there's Heath. I was going to say, what's your biggest howler of the Ned Kelly films? Oh, that's, that, that's, oh, that's easy. That is so easy, mate. A little bike called Yahoo Serious. People might remember mm. as the old turbo. Uh, yeah, reckless, reckless Kelly, wasn't reckless it? Reckless Kelly. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, described by a fellow podcaster here, Ian Rogerson, as my ticket was free, but I want the hour and a half of my life back. <laughs> uh, reckless <laughs> Kelly was made for 20 million bucks and took in about 6 million. Ooh. But is, there is that thing about, about Ned Kelly. It, it's almost like it's become an open screen that we project our images of exactly. what we want on. Exactly. I mean, if you have a look at... Australians love affair with sort of violent crime. Right. Today we have your underbelly shows. You have this interest in what, you know, the gangsters are getting up to. That traces back to this anti-authoritarian, mm. uh, strong culture in 19th century Australia mm. where bushrangers were loved and venerated because they made police, magistrates and the rich folk look stupid. Mm. They were seen as... Um, very much sort of sticking it to the man, and lots of lots of Australians like that. Which the is ultimate why, American. Well, indeed, and and they had um, they had huge support networks. So somebody like uh, Ben Hall yeah. uh, and uh, and his his companion, uh, people were always tipping them off that the coppers were on their way. And the same the same applied to Ned. Mm. He had local informants who let him know when the when the authorities were getting close. Who'd smuggle food out to him? So he had he had a lot of sort of grassroots community support. But I mean, could you imagine a time, say, where like a uh, a problem, well-known 
criminal identity would actually mm. go to a wedding and the Australian Prime Minister would be there. <laughs> I, no, I, I could not imagine that happening at any stage in Australian history. But you, you made the point about us projecting our, our, our yeah. visions upon mm. him. I think it's fascinating that here is a guy who, uh, you know, is in his suit of armour, wants to kill a trainload of police, and we tell our kids, you know, you've got to be sort of respectful of authority today. This guy is still an icon. The Victorian cricket team were known as the Bush Rangers yeah. for most of the time they've been around with their logo, you know, a helmeted Ned Kelly waving a cricket bat. Mm. So this is... My favourite pie shop is Ned's. And it would have been bloody difficult for him to eat, eat a pie with that mask on. He would have had to squeeze it through the little the little eye slit, I suppose. That's right, he's up in Port Stephens and they've actually got a, they've got a statue yeah. of him outside with, <laughs> with his pie trying but, to get it through that little hole. So he's, he's had that impact, I think, on yeah. Australian society where people have rooted for him because he's seen as sticking it to the man and, and that love affair with crime continued indeed. Australia led the world in terms of the movie industry mm. from 1906 until until the middle of the 1910s, and the most popular movies were all Bushranger movies, yeah. and the governments in several states banned them <laughs> uh, because kids were going out and pointing sticks or guns at people and demanding their money. Mm. So there was, uh, and it killed the Australian film industry <laughs> when, when, when the authorities said you can't show any more Bushranger films. So an impact on the film industry... Uh, you've also got an incredible impact on the media in Australia because Kelly was news. People wanted to buy newspapers oh, right, yes. to read what Kelly was up to. Indeed, the siege of Glen Rowan is the first lifetime reporting uh, event in sort of Australian media history where people are sitting there at the end of the telegraph line filing copy back to Melbourne and they're putting out several editions of the paper in, in one day. Mm. It's the first time there is a photograph um, in an Australian newspaper. And all these photographers and people had come up to Glen Rowan to, to get, you know, pictures of the gang in action. Unfortunately, yes. unfortunately the hotel had been burned down. Uh, Kelly Kelly was the only survivor of the, the four-man gang. Mm. Um, two of them had been burnt. The only gang member that was accessible was the body of Joe Byrne, Kelly's good mate. And in the most macabre scene you can imagine. This corpse is a day old, going a bit stiff. They want to create an action shot of of Joe Byrne in action. So they take him out of the police station where his corpse is at Benalla and they tie his body uh, sort of against the wall in an action holding shot. in an action shot, holding a gun all, all on ropes. I've, the fact that he's Joe Byrne allowed me to have the, the, uh, the, the picture in my book, Weekend at Bernie's, the, dead, the, the, the dead man sort of made to come to life. <laughs> um, one of those pivotal moments in Australian media is the precursor to Weekend at Bernie's. It is. And, and this is the first time there's ever a picture in a, a photograph in, in an Australian newspaper. So it, it, it made people want to read the news. Mm. Well, let's just say if Kelly was a howler, there are a lot of howlers around him. There, there are indeed. And... When I, when I pick him as a howler, I'm not saying that everything about him is bad. Mm. In many ways, he was incredibly charismatic. He was incredibly generous. You know, when he tries to ride out of Derildery on, on a girl's pet pony, um, he's told it's this girl's pet pony and he gets off and finds another horse, giving, giving the pony back. Mm. Uh, he, he, was, he was a hugely likeable bloke, but at the end of the day, 
he's, he's, he's basically a terrorist who wants to blow up train tracks and kill coppers. And, um, yeah, he's a howler. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guest galore, each with their very own hero and howler. And next time, we've got infamous impresario Max Markson. 